Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Lord, we give you thanks for this time together. We thank you for your word by which we might know you and be saved. We pray that you would help us now and minister and speak to each one as is needed by your own holy power through your own Holy Spirit. Help us, we pray, to draw near to Christ and transform us and bless us and heal us, O Lord. And we do give you thanks for the good news that you are our true and great Father. And all that we need and have, we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the joke goes that on Mother's Day, a preacher will get up and say something syrupy and sweet, like, oh, mothers, we love you and thank you for your tireless service, and you are like delicate flowers in the gardens of our lives, and like magical unicorns, you prance into our lives every day, and we give you thanks. And then Father's Day comes around, and the preacher gets up and says, you scum, you disgusting men, you are failing in every kind of way. And if you don't straighten up, you're going to ruin the whole stinking planet and so on and so forth. And you're sitting there going, what happened to all the flowers and unicorns and where did all that happen and go? So I guess all I would say is who am I to buck the trend? So men, here we go. Um, I'm, I'm kidding about that. Here's what I would say. On Mother's Day at Seven Mile Road, we tried to cast a biblical vision for motherhood and said, here is God's high calling to you. And if you embrace and live out this vision and mission, it will be to the glory of God and the good of all of those around you. And we want to say and do the same thing simply and briefly to our men this morning. To you dads and you future dads and spiritual dads, we want to give you the high calling of fatherhood. Fatherhood is at the very core and center of the universe. In fact, fatherhood is ultimate reality. And, and those are lofty sentences that don't mean anything yet, but I want to qualify them and show you what they mean. Fatherhood is at the very heart of the universe. It's ultimate reality. And so you men, it is not an overstatement, hear me, it is not an overstatement to say that your significance and your impact upon your wife and children and those around you will long last even your last days. They will last well beyond you. Your fingerprint, for better or for worse, will be on those around you for generations to come. That's the way God's wired it. God has wired it so that as he is father, the impact and significance and influence of father will rest upon children and children's children for generations to come. There's no question that you will be either a source of life and blessing or a source of curse and death and do so for generations. There's no doubt upon the fact that you will leave a fingerprint. The only question is what kind of fingerprint will that be, right? I cannot, again, it is not an overstatement to state the importance and significance of the role of father, right? I could give you, I could drown you in the statistics that all the research and all the studies tell us about even the social importance of fatherhood. There's study after study and research after research and statistic after statistic that tells us that children who grow up without fathers are in so many ways disadvantaged and, and have to overcome enormous obstacles, that such children are privy to poverty and physical illness and mental illness and emotional and sociological problems, that such children are, have a higher dropout rate, earn less in their lifetime, turn often to juvenile delinquency and even become adult criminals themselves, 
The, the, the statistics and studies tell us that even the burden upon society as a whole is enormous because of the social ills caused by fatherlessness, because of father wounds, because of father hunger. In our country alone, it's estimated in the conservative estimates that U.S. taxpayers pay $112 billion a year simply to try and address and alleviate the problems caused by fatherlessness and father wounds and father hunger. Over a decade, America will spend about a trillion dollars to try and address and alleviate the social ills caused by poor fathers and absent fathers. And here's the thing I would say to us at Seven Mile Road. This stuff is not sociological studies way out there, some kind of phenomenon we can stand at a distance and point to and observe. These are realities that we know many of us here that are much closer to home, right? M many of us on a day like Father's Day have great reason to celebrate. Some of our dads were good dads and present with us and, and they were there. They weren't perfect, they weren't Jesus, but they were not horrible and, and we can rightly give God great thanks for them. We can bless God for the gift of fathers as we ought to on a day like this. But for others of us, you know that when we mention fathers, a day like Father's Day, as you step into the drugstore to find the right kind of card that fits what you want to say, there seems to be no card that can rightly capture what, what this word means to you. Father's Day for many of you is to point and prod and poke at wounds, deep wounds for some of us. Wounds that perhaps have scabbed over time, but just enough mention seems to reopen them quickly. And, and some of us know the pain of aggressive fathers or abusive fathers or apathetic or absent fathers. And some of us men are heading into fatherhood or neck deep in fatherhood, and we've had no vision of what good fatherhood means. And so we have barely any sense of vision of how we ought to be fathers. We've had no playbook from which to play from. And we're sort of blazing this trail that wasn't blazed for us, and we're trying to be good and godly dads, and yet we're lost because we've had no example of it before us. And that's difficult, and it's hard. And I would say to us that the scriptures this morning, if we were to consider the scriptures about this, there's both bad news and good news. And in some sense, the bad news makes the good news even better. And, and in one sense, if you consider the bad news, it might even be encouraging to you. And, and here's the bad news in the scriptures, that the problem of fatherlessness and father hunger and father wounds, these are not new to our day or our generation, but rather that the problems of failed families and flawed fathers is as old as fathers themselves. The Bible is not naive about the difficulties in these relationships. In fact, the Bible is stark and real and raw in presenting to us what sin does in the world. That when sin comes into the world, it not only fractures our relationship with God, but it has outworkings and it decimates and destroys and devastates relationships between us and one another. Even most basic, foundational, fundamental relationships like between a father and child. And the scriptures do not hide that. In fact, if you look in the scriptures, you will not find one fully functional family at all. You should think about that. 
as you think about your own brokenness and the brokenness of your relationships, the brokenness within yourself, again, this is bad news, but it might be encouraging for you to hear, there is not one fully functional family in all the scriptures, but that the scriptures are honest and open and transparent and raw about the brokenness in families, particularly even the failings of fathers. For example, if we were to just walk through some of the first families in the scriptures, that would be clear. If I were to show you, if you turn your Bible open, in the first page you see a man named Adam. If ever there was a man who had an opportunity to be a good dad and a good husband and live in a good world, it was Adam. Adam was created perfect. He had a perfect wife, a perfect relationship with God, a perfect created world. And yet you find that that perfection lasts about two pages. And your Bibles are thick. And from page three to the end, it's the outworkings of what happens because it's not perfect anymore. In fact, by chapter three, you find that God's enemy, the serpent, has come into the, into the garden. And Adam, this man who was charged by God to be a provider and a protector and a defender, who was supposed to take a stand against God's enemy and defend God's honor and God's word and defend his wife, you find in Genesis 3, he's standing there with his hands in his pocket, apathetic, absent, abdicating the role that God had called him to. God had called him to be a fighter and a warrior. That's why there's something deep within the heart of every man that longs to fight. That's why you can't watch Braveheart without having something tingle in your soul. Because in the heart of every man is this call to be a protector, to defend, to fight for what's right. The problem is because we're not engaged in the right kind of fight, we'll, we'll settle for wrong fights all over the place. You'll play Call of Duty for six hours because something in your heart wants to be about something epic and heroic. And God has that for you. But we settle for virtual things rather than real things. And so this man, Adam, was supposed to fight and yet in the garden, hands in his pocket. His wife is being dragged away to sin, and he's got nothing to say. He's standing there the whole time with her as the entire world is corrupted by sin. And then when God comes in chapter 3 to call them to a given account, now he's got plenty to say. And he throws his wife under the bus and says, she did it. It's all her fault. And it does not take long before the sin of that father finds its way into the next generation. You don't have to but turn one page before you begin to see the brokenness of this man fall onto his sons. Because in Genesis 4, you've got two boys given to Adam, Cain and Abel. And just like dad threw mom under the bus, so this son has learned to take out his aggression on his brother, and you read the story and you find that Cain kills his brother Abel. And again, the, the sin begins to trickle down through the line because you, you hardly have to turn one chapter again before you find, and so likewise, Cain's descendants are broken and wounded as their father was. One of Cain's descendants is a man named Lamech. If you read in Genesis, you find out that Lamech goes around boasting, someone bumped into me and I bumped them off. And he, and he goes on to say, if Cain killed one, look at me. And, and you begin to see the effects of sin and its outworkings in the world. You can't get to but Genesis 6, three chapters after the fall, and we find out the whole world now is filled with corrupt sons and daughters and broken families with failing fathers. And God is essentially going to reset the whole thing. And in Genesis 6, you've got the story of the flood where he's going to wipe the whole thing out. 
And if you've heard the story of Noah, perhaps you go, okay, at last, one righteous man who's going to do it right. Finally, a good family that's going to be saved while the rest of the families of the earth are blotted out. But as you come to read Genesis, you find, though all the families of the earth are wiped out and washed away, sin is not yet washed away. Because Noah and his family, those eight in the ark, are sinners themselves. And they too are a broken and flawed family. In fact, the only other story of Noah that we have in the scriptures outside of the flood is this incident where he goes off to work, gets drunk, and passes out in the field naked. And his sons have to deal with this mess caused by their fathers. Think of that. Some of you know that well. And, and the scriptures are saying to you, brokenness has been there from the beginning. These two sons have to deal with their drunken father who's lying disgraceful and naked in the fields. And these two are put in the impossible condition of having to try and deal with that situation. Two of them deal with it honorably, one dishonorably, and is cursed for his life and throughout his generations. Then you, you read, keep reading in Genesis, you find that his descendant is this man named Abraham. So now you get to chapter 10. And after the listing of all these sons, you find out, all right, here's Abraham. And if ever there's hope of a good father, it's Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. You and I are one of them, and so on and so forth, and right hand and left hand. And if anyone is going to be a good dad, Father Abraham is going to be the one. In fact, Father Abraham is father not just to Christians, but to Jews, to Muslims. Most of the world looks to Father Abraham as father, father of the faith. Except what kind of father is Father Abraham? He's got one son promised to him, but because he and his wife can't wait for God's promise, they take matters into their own hands. He basically impregnates his servant girl, and then when she has a baby, and he ends up having a son of his own with his regular wife, he dismisses this servant and this child, basically drives them out into the wilderness to die. And God alone has to show up and rescue and redeem the sins of Father Abraham. Broken, flawed. Abraham has a promised son, Isaac. Isaac is such a failure as a father. He's got two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. He, he, he's such a failure as a father in showing preferential treatment to one that these siblings end up hating each other for most of their lives. They're so conflicted, one suffers the wounds of not being dad's beloved son. And so much so that these brothers turn on each other and are fragmented for most of their adult lives. And so if, if anyone, you would think, okay, Isaac's son Jacob, if anyone knows of how it is to be treated preferentially and not to be dad's special son and the wounds that come from that and the sibling rivalry that all of that causes, it's Jacob. So surely he's going to be a better father. And, and maybe some of you can relate. You don't have a vision for fatherhood. The one thing that you do know is you're going to be the total opposite of what dad was for you, right? The one thing you've got a path for, a commitment to is whatever dad did, I'm going to do the opposite. You can imagine Jacob would have been convicted in that same way. I'm not going to be like dad. And yet perhaps many of you know that the same things you've abhorred about your parents, somewhere in you, you find it's right there with you as well. And when you look in the mirror, you see it looking back at you. In, in fact, when you read Jacob's story, you find that he does to his sons the exact same thing that he had suffered from his father with. The wounds that he had, he inflicted on his own sons. He had 12 sons. 
and did the same thing of treating one with such preferential treatment that the brothers hated this one boy. They hated this one boy, Joseph, to the point that they were ready to throw their brother into a well, then pick him up only to sell him off to slavery, to go home and tell dad he died in some freak accident. I mean, by the time you do all of that, all I've done is gotten you to the end of the book of Genesis. There's 65 other books where the story of fragmented families and failed fathers continues to play out in the world. If you were to keep going from there, you would keep hearing this same refrain that all these fathers are so deeply flawed and brokenness because of sin extends to every family upon the earth. The Bible is filled with this stark, realistic picture of brokenness and no father seems to be perfect except for one. In fact, the Bible is this long river of failed fathers until you get to one good one and to his one good son. In fact, in the scriptures, we've said this many times at Seven Mile Road, the Bible is simply a story of a bunch of broken people with one hero. That's why the point of the Bible is not be like David and be like Abraham and be like Joseph. The point of the Bible is hope in God because he's the only good one. And when you get to God, you find now there is but one good and perfect father who had one good and perfect son. And when you see the father and the son, God the father and Jesus his son, now at last you see finally the perfect relationship. The perfect relationship between father and son. And the first time you see the father and the son together in the New Testament is Matthew 3. It's the passage that Kurt read for us. Let me just read you again verses 16 and 17. Matthew 3, Jesus is going to be baptized, and the Father shows up, and here's what it says. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In his, book, in his book, Father Hunger, this pastor named Doug Wilson, who's been so helpful in many of the things I would share with you this day, he rightly points out that we should pay attention to these first words uttered between the Father and the Son, that they're significant, that when you look at the Father and the Son interacting in Matthew 3, you're given a vision for what true fatherhood really is. Let me say that again. That when you watch the Father and the Son even in Matthew 3, you're given a vision for what true fatherhood here is. And here, here's what I mean by that. Fatherhood is not a human invention that we project into the heavens. Fatherhood is not this idea that we try to describe God. Here's what I mean by that. When we try and explain God and understand God, we'll use metaphors and images and analogies to try and understand who God is. God is infinite and transcendent and so other and so different and so unlike us that we have to use these human metaphors to try and understand what God is like. And so the Bible will say things like, God is a rock. Is God a rock? No. But we say that he's a rock so that we might understand how strong and firm and sure God is. The Bible will use terms like, God is a tower, a refuge, a fortress. Is God a building? Is God constructed by bricks? 
No, but we use these metaphors and analogies to help us understand what God is like. The Bible will say that God is bread, that God is living water. All of these are just metaphors used to try and describe God. But here's what I want you to hear. God is Father. Father is not a human invention that we've projected onto the big screens in heaven. God has eternally been Father. Father is ultimate reality because before the beginning of the world, God has eternally existed as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Fatherhood is not a human invention to try and explain God. Father is who God is. It's at the very core of his identity. Fatherhood is ultimate reality. It's not something we created to try and describe or understand God. It's who God is, and God has beamed fatherhood down onto the earth that we might understand what he's like. It's not us projecting to the big screens in heaven, but rather God beaming down to the little screens carried by each man. And what each man is a, a small screen displaying to the world what ultimate reality is, what father is, who God is. So I want you to hear this. Every single man who is called as father or spiritual father, you are displaying to the world what God is like. At all times, hear that, every single man is communicating something about what God is like. The only question is whether they're telling the truth about God or whether they're telling a lie about God. At all times, you are communicating to the world some truth about God. The only question is, is your life telling the truth of who God is or telling a lie of who God is? At all times, you're communicating. A dad who is overly harsh and always aggressive and shows no mercy is communicating something about God to his sons and to his daughters. A dad who, on the other hand, is always a pushover and is never strict and never utters no is also communicating something about God to their sons and daughters. A dad who is absent is communicating something to their sons and daughters about God, as is a dad who reads with his kids and plays with his kids and cuddles with his kids and gives to his kids is communicating something about God to his sons and daughters. Many of you know this from your own life, that when you think of God as Father, whether you like it or not, there's a vision of your own dad that filters your view of God. Whether you like it or not, you see God through the filter of your own father. And so if you had a dad who was hard to be pleased, or if you're that kind of dad who is very rarely pleased, then you know what it's like to try and relate with that kind of a dad. Everything in you is trying to accomplish something, achieve something to try and win his respect, to try and win his admiration. And so many of you know that you tried as hard as you did in school or at sports or at a job to somehow get dad to notice, to somehow get, get dad's approval. And now, with it, whether you like it or not, that filter is there as you think about God. And when you think about God, there's something deep within your heart that believes you've got to impress him, achieve something, accomplish something to get him to notice you, admire you, accept you. If you had a dad who was overly aggressive, who was harsh, who when you made a mistake, the best thing to do was to run and hide, well, then there's something about that that filters your understanding of God the Father. And you imagine that when you mess up, the best thing you ought to do is hide 
because he's going to get you one way or another. Some of you have struggled with feeling like you're worthless because if you weren't enough to keep dad around, then maybe you're not worth enough. And so you begin to project that into the heavens and wonder if God the Father sees you as significant and worthy and enough. I had one young dad who told me jokingly, I find it so easy to love my kids. Why was it so hard for my father to love me? And you wonder. And, and the truth is, at all times, us fathers are communicating something about God to our sons and daughters. And we're either giving them a true vision of God or a distorted and false one. But here's the good news. Here it is. Despite your brokenness, despite the brokenness of every family on the face of the earth, the good news is the father you desperately wanted is the father Jesus died to give you a relationship with. You are at no disadvantage because the true father is the father of all who believe. You have the better and best father. In fact, it is the true father after which all fathers are patterned after. When you see Matthew 3 and you see Jesus with his father, you're given a vision of what the true father is like, what your father who believe is like. There are some things that Doug Wilson in his book points out that I think are helpful. When you notice here, God with Jesus at the baptism, one of the things you notice is that the father is there. Just that, true fatherhood is there. When the son comes up out of the waters, the father is there. Men, we sin. Our city is filled with men who sin by abandoning and abdicating our call to be fathers. And yet the true father shows us that the father is there. When the son came up out of the waters, he's there. And he is your father, and he is there for you as well. You'll notice also he's not just there, but he makes his presence felt. Do you notice that when he comes up out of the water, what does the father do? He sends the spirit like a dove to descend upon his son. And so we begin to learn something about true fatherhood and that true fatherhood is not just there, but that he makes his presence felt. Some of you know that you didn't have absent dads, but you might as well have because you can be physically present and yet a million miles away. You can have checked out spiritually and emotionally even while your body is sitting there. And some of us men, we know what that's like. You go home at the end of a long day at work and you know how easy it is to be in the living room, to have the kids pull at your leg, and yet you're feverishly typing away at a laptop or clicking buttons on a phone or zoned out in front of a TV. We know what it's like, and yet true fatherhood, God the Father shows us, is not just to be there but to make your presence felt. I know of many godly men who at the end of a long day when all they want to do is just zone out. They're tired. They don't want to be bothered. They deserve that couch. Well, they will, before they touch the handle of the door, pray and say, Lord, please help me and give me the energy I need to not just be there but be present when I walk in. So that when the door is opened and those three, or if you're Tyson, six rugrats come and attack, give me grace, God, to not zone out, but not just to be there, but to be present as I'm here, to kiss my wife as I walk in, 
to wrestle with my boys on the floor, to build blocks, to do these simple things and make my presence felt. The father is there and he makes his presence felt. And another thing you'll notice is not only is he there and not only does he make his presence felt, but he expresses pleasure in his son. When the son comes up out of the waters and the father is there, and the Father makes his presence felt by sending the Spirit. Do you hear what comes out of the Father's mouth? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I can tell you, hear this. We live in a day where we probably have a country filled with people whose deepest longing and heartache is to just have heard that sentence from Dad. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Some of you still would say, the deep longing of your heart would just to be to know, dad would identify with you and say he's pleased with you. The father, true fatherhood shows us that at the center of what fatherhood really is, and this is ultimate reality, this is not human projection into the heavens, this is truth coming down from the heavens to the earth, that true fatherhood is pleasure, delight, in these little ones, in these sons and daughters. This father identifies with his son. This is my son. That's my boy with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And hear this. Every one of you, both coming from good families and broken ones, from the best of dads to the worst of dads, the deepest longing of your heart has been met through Jesus because now the true Father says this over you. You've wanted to hear this, and I'm telling you through Christ, the highest opinion and best Father in the universe says over you, you are my beloved child, and with you I am well pleased. It's true. It's absolutely true. In fact, truer than anything in the universe because he is truer than anything in the universe. And the good news is Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, came into the world for broken fathers, sons, and daughters like us to redeem us and bring us into a relationship with his own father. That's the gospel. The good news is that God's own son came to the earth. And you want to talk about father wounds. The father wounded his perfect son for us. That's the greatest father wound, is that Isaiah tells us, by his wounds we are healed. And so in love for you, the father wounds his perfect son. And could there be a greater wound to the father than to have this son with whom he shared eternal, joyful, pleasurable relationship and to hide his face from his own son as he is on the cross for our sin. And so the father is wounded and the father wounds the son for our sake. And this son dies upon the cross and in doing so will take all who believe and bring them into relationship with God. So that our hope is not in a temporary man here but in the eternal God who is father. This is why when Jesus rises again he tells his disciples I'm going back to my father. And you can imagine that reunion in heaven when the father is reunited with his son. But it's not just a, a reunion to, share, to be shared by Jesus and God alone because Jesus says, I'm going to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Do you hear that? Before he went to heaven, he said, Brothers, 
I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. The good news is that Jesus' father is now your father through the gospel. To all who believe, your hope is in him. And to all who believe, you have hope that you can be for your sons and daughters what he has been to you. There's, there's great hope that you, through your lifetime, can tell the truth about God to your sons and daughters through the way that you are fathers. You can tell them what God is like. Whether you like it or not, every time your children say, Our Father who art in heaven, your face is going to be the filter through which they pray that prayer. But by God's grace, they might pray it well. By God's grace for our children, may it be that when they say, Our Father in heaven, they would say, oh, Father in heaven must be awesome because Dad was. So I guess if you boil down everything I was trying to say today, it's this. Some of you have had poor fathers. Some of you have been poor fathers. But the good news is the true and great father is now your father through his beloved son. And through him, you might be a good father as well. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the truth of who you are and pray that your Holy Spirit would now fill us with a vision of God the Father, a Father who loves us and knows us and has set his affection upon us from before the foundation of the world, a Father who has never held back one thing from us but given generously all. Is there anything you have, O Lord, that you have not given to your children? Anything that you have, O oh Lord, that you have not given. You've shared not only your, even your glory you've given to your children, your son you have given to your children, your spirit you've given to your children, your kingdom you have given to your children. Everything that we want, everything that we need, your acceptance, your approval, your affirmation, your pleasure, your delight, you have given to your children. And so we pray today that we would fly to Jesus Christ and run to him, and bind ourselves so tightly in him that we would be God's beloved children with whom you are well pleased. We pray that the Holy Spirit would himself minister to us, bind our wounds, and know that through your wounds we are healed. By your wounds we are healed, Isaiah says. And pray that your Holy Spirit would meet and minister to us in our deepest place, and that you would bring us to health and joy. Do more than we knew to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.